The Buddhist Geeks Conference is an interactive event focusing on a community exploration of the intersection between Buddhism, technology, and emerging global culture. Join us for the third annual Buddhist Geeks Conference in partnership with MailChimp and Tricycle from August 16th through the 18th, 2013 in Boulder, Colorado. This year's list of presenters includes Reggie Ray, Lodro Rinsler, Rick Hansen, Marianne Elliott, Gary Weber, Diane Hamilton, and many others. The conference, which has been featured on the pages of Wired, Fast Company, Tricycle, and the Los Angeles Times, includes informative keynote addresses, power-punch TED-style talks, provocative roundtable discussions, and community-led unconference sessions where you get to have the conversations you want to have. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. Buddhist Geeks, discover the emerging face of Buddhism. Episode 270, Transcendence and Anti-Time. In this episode, we speak with designer Mikael Harboon about his augmented reality project Transcendence and how augmented reality could one day bridge the gap between inner contemplation and external technology. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn. And I'm thrilled today to be joined by Mikael Harboon. Mikael, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to <laughs> thank speak you very with much. Us. Thank you very much for uh, the invitation, Vincent. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. Just a little bit of background for the Buddhist Geeks listeners. Uh, Mikael, uh, you're originally from Luxembourg. You graduated from the Strait College in Paris, 2011. Yep. Um, what were you studying there? I was studying uh, interactive system and objects, which is uh, basically what uh, most of designers today call interaction design, which is like the art of uh, interacting with uh, modern technology and the study of how uh, we interact with uh, smartphones, computers, and, and in general, how, how behaviors basically evolve through uh, the modern objects we, we use today. Amazing. And you're also, I guess, after having finished your degree, you, you came to the States and you're now designing at a very um, well-known and prestigious design firm called IDEO. Yep. And you're based in Chicago. Exactly. Based in Chicago for a year and a half now already. Okay. So you've been there for, for a while now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it starts to, yeah. Yeah, that's great. And, and you're also a bit of a, a, bit of a, a philosopher. I mean, it's, it's really clear looking at your work, um, some of your design work, that um, you've got a very strong philosophical and spiritual kind of background. Yeah, I, I, I try to keep it alive <laughs> as much as possible. It's not always easy to uh, to when you work in a in a consultancy like that, where you know you have to think a lot about planning and about tomorrows. So it's it's very hard in a way to remain in the present time and, and to focus on on more like broader uh, philosophical questions. As often we are like in a in a, in a state where we need to, to quickly go forward 
and, and, and design something. So I, I try as much as possible to, to step back and, and try to, to see the big picture in things. Uh, but it's, it's, I guess it's a muscle. It's a muscle which, which has to be trained. And, and I guess which, the more you train it, the, the faster you can access in a way to, to see the bigger picture, I feel. But it is, it is a continuous path indeed. Mm, well said. And I, I was curious to hear a little bit about your kind of background in terms of how sure. you got into design. <laughs> um, and then this other side of it is all, also, if you could weave it in there, is how you got into this sort of it's philosophical. Yeah, the broader question. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to, to track back to, to what made me really start uh, thinking on a career in design. But I feel I've always been focused on, on the more creative side of things. Um, as far as I can remember, the first things that I used to draw as a kid were inspired by the video games I played. Um, I remember imagining like all sorts of new characters and, and levels for my favorite games, which really sounds geeky, <laughs> but I believe that video games at that time did really stimulate kids' imagination. What kinds uh, of games were you playing? Oh, you know, like the old games on the NAS, you know, whether it was like, you know, the original Zelda or Mega Man or all these, you know, very uh, classical games like now, which have now become institutions over time. <laughs> nice. And I, I believe I never stopped being creative since then. Uh, I just didn't know where I, I should focus my creativity on. Um, I, I first started studying graphic design, but then through my studies and internship changed to architecture, product design, tried a lot of things before finding out um, what I'm doing today. And I realize now over time that there was something which connected all these disciplines together. And that thing um, was the concept of, of experience, uh, I guess. Um, I was always more interested in, in the, the experience uh, objects less, led to, but less interested in, in the actual nature of, of the design, whether it's an, an architecture, a chair, or a, or a CD cover. Like what really made me think uh, was how a person would perceive or react to an object and what thoughts would be triggered in, um, in his or her mind when interacting uh, with the object. And so this is actually what naturally led me to interaction and user experience design, which really emphasizes on, on how people interact with their everyday objects and, and, and technology in, in everyday life. And so the funny thing is that interaction design is very similar to game design uh, in a way, as it is about defining the rules of how a system works and, and making them intuitive for the user as he is uh, discovering them. And it's just funny to think that I've kind of went through a lot of stuff just to come back to what I was actually already doing as a kid, uh, in a way. Um, like thinking about like interaction, whether it's uh, on the screen or with real objects in, in, in general. And so I believe the philosophical interest came along this exploration as I got interested in that more uh, hidden fundamental aspect of, of design, not, not necessarily the design of how something looks like, but the design of how we experience it. And what, 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 what is it exactly that triggers this type of behavior among users? What are people's first reception of a product and how do these impressions differ from person to person? If philosophy is being considered as a study of fundamental problems such as um, those linked to reality, existence, like the human mind, uh, language. I believe that behind the design, we see there is also an underlying pattern of tensions, which essentially raise very similar questions as those raised in, in philosophical debates. Um, the approach also is very similar as both adopt a very systemic and an abstract way of, of looking at things. There is, for example, a, a thought experiment I love to, to, to think about. Like, uh, it's, 
It's a thought experiment written by Thomas Nagel, and which is called uh, Nagel's Bat. So in, in that philosopher's story, he explains like how bats are mainly perceiving the external world by detecting uh, sound reflections from objects of their own shrieks. And so they have a very different way of seeing the world than we do with our eyes. And so the philosopher is wondering what it is like for a bat to be a bat. And, and for him, actually, there is no way we can actually know that even if a human would gradually transform into a bat, it is impossible for him to imagine how the future states of his transformation will feel like. And so this kind of raises the very subjective nature of experience, the fact that we can't see and experience the world through somebody else's lens. Maybe the way I see the color yellow is totally different than the way you see it. And as I will never be able to go inside your head, I will never know how you see the color yellow. And, and this phenomenon is inherent to the design process. When a designer crafts a product, he has his very own way of experiencing it, but he has no idea how a user will interpret it. And that's why I, at IDEO, for instance, we, 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 we research is so important. That's why bringing products in front of users as much as possible and, and getting their response is, is critical. Because at the end, um, by blending together as many interpretations as possible, um, we are able to create experiences which resonate in a much more um, universal way. But, so philosophy, I guess, helps us um, stepping back, like going to the fundamentals and, and, and trying to get, get to that point where we really look at the purity of things and, and try to get rid of, of what is superficial in a way. Mm, beautiful. And it, it's really interesting the way that I... Uh, got turned on to your work and your design stuff is through this um, concept video that you created for your college thesis, and it's called uh, Transcendence, but it's with a Z at the end. Um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what Transcendence is. Sure, sure, with pleasure. Yeah, so Transcendence was my thesis project. I, I realized that at straight college, um, yeah, one year and a half ago. And so it's, it's a pure design provocation. Uh, which tackles the question on how we can connect deep thinking and contemplation with modern information technology. And obviously, it's not an, uh, an actual solution or anything like that, but more of an um, exploration with the hope to raise the, the debate among people. So at a very concrete level, it's a pair of augmented, augmented reality glasses which transform the user's perception of reality. And so it modifies the user's sight in a very special way, in, in a way that makes him question what he's used to believe in. And so the user could be walking around in town or sitting in a train and experience the world through this distortion and start thinking about stuff in a different way. And so Transcendence would offer a variety of experiences and each of those would modify the user's reality in a very specific way. And so the example I show in the concept video is the empathy experience. And so what this experience does is that it replaces all the people's faces you encounter with your own face. And so what this experience tries to facilitate is our very human ability to project ourselves into others. And of course, it's an extreme metaphor, but it does make everybody around us suddenly feel similar. And that is one of the core value of, of empathy, feeling one with others. 
And so the way transcendence is conceptualized is that as you go through these different experiences, we can access deeper levels for each of those. And the deeper levels transform our perception in an even more transformational way. Um, the second level of the empathy experience, for instance, extrapolates our projection into the world, but not only making us feel one with others, but with everything around us, including nature and, and, the, and the universe. And so the idea is that there would be a numerous, numerous different experiences, each one, of, each one covering a different fundamental topic of reflection. You could be living an experience about vanity, about the topic of ethics, uh, existence, the human mind, and, and so on. And that's kind of what, at a higher level, um, transcendence does. Uh, behind this uh, is a whole concept of connecting to other users who are living the same experience and share your thoughts with them, uh, but also the ability to summon thoughts of famous philosophers and learn what they are thinking on the topic of the experience you, you chose to live. Uh, and so what I wanted to achieve uh, with transcendence was actually more uh, a catalyst uh, for thoughts and debate rather than a, a finished product. Uh, I wanted really to create a design fiction which would encompass certain messages I felt strong on communicating. And so one of the messages I, I, I really wanted to share with this project is um, the loss of connection to our inner self. We live surrounded by tools and objects which put us in a constant time of connection, interaction, or distraction, but very scarcely in a time of reflection and introspection. Um, smartphones, for instance, do a great job at making us super efficient or entertain people, but they don't do such a good job at connecting us to our imagination and thoughts. Um, and there might be multiple reasons for that. And I, I can think about two reasons. One is basically the amount of data we are confronted with um, on a daily basis. Um, we're constantly consuming information. Like spending a day without checking all your stuff online almost feels like skipping lunch or, or dinner. It becomes a biological need. Yes. <laughs> the problem is that this whole flow and abundance of data is actually more like, like fast food. It's, it's like feeding our instant need of information rather than helping us reflect. Like information pieces which have a real impact on our life and teach us something meaningful are very scarce. And so what would it mean to have one meaningful information a day which really makes us think about something rather than a thousand, then we forget the day after. So one point I wanted to, to communicate. Um, the other point is, is, is actually the, the nature of, of our experience with information. Uh, studies have shown that the majority of our time online is spent on social networks. And I, I believe that they have made the world more connected and have had a great impact on, on society in a lot of situations. However, the way we use these products automatically put us in a state of outwardness, a state in which we are naturally focused on how things appear from the outside, whether it's by looking at, you know, at people's profiles, see their wedding or holiday pictures. We very often end up in a state where where we look and, and, and judge what is shown to us. And how can information, rather than being bound to the external side of things, help us connect further to our human ability to reflect and contemplate? And, and I feel that, that we kind of keep fleeing our own thoughts by never giving them the time and attention they deserve to flourish, as we often prefer just giving our attention away. So 
this is one of the things um, Transcendence is, is trying to accomplish. It is basically immersing us inside a, a thought experiment, which facilitates uncommon thoughts and associations in our minds. And so rather than just reading passively about a, a philosopher's approach in a book, we are immersed inside the philosopher's mind and, and interact with the content uh, of his thought. And I, I strongly believe that technology should leverage the abilities which have brought us to where we are today and, and not act as a barrier. Yeah, I was going to say, as you're describing this, I can imagine one kind of person um, who I've met um, who is, is very deeply interested in the contemplative and reflective process and may share your criticisms of the information kind of overwhelm situation that we have. And yet they wouldn't necessarily see technology as a, as a possible part of the solution. Um, there's more of like a romantic idea of like, we got to go back, you know? So that's one of the things I found so interesting in your, um, in your work is this sort of fusion of technology with this interest in, in, in sort of being more contemplative. Could you say a little bit about the piece of technology or a little bit more about how that fits in and why that should be part of this solution? It's interesting, yeah, that you mentioned that and that you, you captured that. Yeah, I, I didn't try to say, oh, let's go back in the woods and, and, and live like, like before, right? That, that really wasn't like uh, where I wanted to, to go because like, we can't break, we can't go back. Like, it's, it's about going forward now. And so it's not about saying, let's, let's forget about all the technology. We, we, but how can we, in a way, orient or direct the evolution of technology in a way which makes them um, more connect with our inner self? And so that was really one of the goals is not to neglect them, but to actually uh, incorporate them and, and work in partnership with them. And maybe, yeah, to build that, that common goal, which could lead to a, a potential harmony, again, between technology and, and contemplation. And so the, the technology uh, using Transcendenza, there are two big ones, um, which are really um, going to become mainstream in, in the future. Uh, one of the technology Transcendenza is using is called Augmented Reality. And so augmented reality consists in overlaying information on our natural site. Uh, the car industry already is working on that uh, by, with their heads-up displays, which project speed and navigation instructions directly onto the windshield. Uh, and so multiple companies from giants uh, such as Google to startups are working on a more mass-oriented version of the product, which, would be, which could be weird like a pair of glasses. Uh, Google, for instance, is working on the Google Glass project, and they plan to release it already next year or something. And from what Google has been communicating on the project, the first generation of applications would primarily display a very similar content than your smartphone, like you know, incoming text messages or like a city map or your nearby Starbucks or other types of businesses. Right. So most information would be textual or or iconographical, making the split between what is real and virtual very clear. But um, I think that next generations of AR application uh, will have a less clear split between real and virtual. And, and there might be a new kind of reality emerging from that, a mixed reality in which it would be hard to kind of see what's real and what's, what's virtual. And this raises also a ton of questions on how the use of advertising would work in that context, how, how, how pervasive or intrusive can an information become and what, really what was really interesting with uh, what Google was working on is that apparently the issue they were working a lot on recently was not the actual technological side of the product, but more 
the content aspect. Uh, what, what information are people actually really interested in seeing overlaid onto their everyday world? If it's really mostly the stuff you already see on your smartphone, uh, is it really worth it? Like, what scenarios make the fact that it is overlaid really useful and, and meaningful? Um, and so we, we, we might have a, an answer in, in, in the upcoming products, but I, I, I'm really curious to see what, what actually will make it really uh, useful and, and what, what, what will it actually offer with more than, than your smartphone in a way. Like, what makes it the fact that it is overlaid really interesting? It's, it's, these are all questions which we, as, as technologists, we have to deal with in the upcoming years. Yeah, it's such a huge set of questions I mean, especially when you're talking about this whole notion of mixed reality of, of the virtual and real starting to become more and more indistinguishable um, that's, I mean, that's a complete head trip from a certain point of view mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and if you um, push it a step further and imagine how this technology could um, get translated into contact lenses making uh, the splits between people who have the technology and who the people who don't have the technology invisible, it gets even crazier. And, and the University of Washington actually already created a functional contact lens, which was able to display a single LED pixel, which might not sound like, like, like revolutionary right now, but um, tomorrow it's going to be two pixels, and after tomorrow three pixels. I mean, it's going to evolve, right? At one stage, uh, we will be able to, to, uh, to display a similar content than, than, than augmented reality glasses immediately into contact lenses. And that, uh, it also raises a whole bunch of ethical questions. Like, will people who have these glasses, who have these contact lenses, have to, uh, communicate, it, to communicate that outwardly? Will, will, will have to actually, you know, like mention that they have these contact lenses or not? Is it okay to have it without people knowing? Um, so, this is really interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And you know, the other the other technology that uh, was very interesting in Transcendence, and I think you're going to mention it, is this idea of, of computer brain interfaces. Could you say a little bit about that? How how science is that, or how science fiction is that? Because you, it's there are a few companies I know working on things like this. Um, so yeah, brain computer interfaces or BCIs are are like augmented augmented reality glasses, um, also leaving the realm of uh, military and scientific use to become consumer-facing products. Um, the company Emotive, for instance, uh, released a headset which analyzes your brain activity and works as a controller allowing the user to navigate inside the, a 3D space or to control different objects, virtual objects. Um, it's, it's great for, for video games, but it has also great potential in everyday use. Uh, you can, for instance, assign different brain activities and patterns to a, a physical wheelchair and support people with physical disabilities, making somebody um, uh, be able to control a wheelchair just by, by thinking on different directions. Um, another company called Interaction focuses more on the mental state of the mind. Um, by analyzing brain waves, it is able to understand the level of stress or calmness you are at, so it could help you focus on, on a specific task by letting you know when your mind starts to wander and, and disconnect. And it's already very precise at measuring the different states of meditation too, which could become valuable for any practitioner in terms of feedback and history tracking. But also IDEO actually uh, partnered with a PhD student from the MIT who uh, is developing a technology to measure a person's emotional response to specific activity or scenarios. Um, His name is Elliot Hedman, and his intention is to apply 
the findings and knowledge to design better experiences for the user. Um, so the question he's raising is, is by having tools which help us have a greater empathy, would, it be, would we be able as designers to design with more accuracy impact if we can see in a way how people respond uh, to different situations? So I'd say in terms of translating uh, the brain's activity uh, and, and emotional states, the industry is making considerable progress. Uh, what Transcendent is using and which is still in its early infancy is the idea of sharing abstract thoughts like words, sentences, and all types of complex uh, thought associations. Um, the closest I've seen so far is a research going on at the University of California where they are developing a computer model able to reconstruct the sounds of the words people are thinking of. And it's a bit technical, but uh, I think they do that by analyzing the patterns of the brain's blood flow in an area associated with sounds. And so apparently they were able to, to guess images um, being thought of by the patients. So sort of like a mind-reading technology in a certain way. It's a very low-fi version of a mind-reading technology, yes. Okay, cool. And, you know, uh, just to, fin to wrap up this, this interesting, really interesting exploration of transcendence, because all, this is all in 10 minutes. I've just got to mention, this is a 10-minute concept video. So all of these ideas are being explored and these different kind of um, really big questions are being brought up through, through the work that you've done. And I also was really clear, having done a lot of Buddhist contemplative practice, that there was some sort of uh, Buddhist influence in there. And when I went to your Vimeo page and looked at the comments, I, I saw somebody bring up that same question. And you responded uh, positively that, in fact, there was uh, a Buddhist influence and that you're glad he had sort of picked up on that. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, you know, since this is Buddhist geeks, I mean, we definitely uh, are are not limited to the Buddhist side and we're very geeky, but it'd be curious to hear what the influences were uh, specifically on the Buddhist side. Yes, I have a very uh, basic knowledge of, of Buddhism. I'm not a practitioner myself, but feel very close to the high level approach of it. And one of the things which influenced the project a lot, I would say is actually more related to, um, to, to a general mindset uh, rather than a particular belief. Um, I deeply connect with the idea of striving to reach a state of mindfulness through a continuous process of contemplation and meditation. The fact that one has to adopt a certain discipline and be extremely patient in order to evolve uh, your perception of the world. Um, a direct influence on the project is, for instance, the way you get to select these different experiences. Um, the idea is that you can't actually play the game by just switching on the button and select among all the available experiences. It's pretty simple. The system detects our meditation level by reading our brain waves, and it only lets us in if we have reached a certain meditation threshold. And so the idea there is that there are experiences which could only be accessed if we are at a deeper level of meditation. So the more we strive to go deeper in our meditation, the more transcendental the experience um, become. And so this rule uh, actually encompasses a, a message, a, a value I wanted to, to communicate. We can only see what we have become conscious of. And gaining mindfulness, gaining that ability of seeing the hidden side of things can't be achieved in in, in, in a blank. It, it, it takes patience, work, and a lot of, of contemplation time. And, and the problem with new technologies today is that they, it has, it, 
it has made everything instantaneous. We have become so spoiled to the fact that everything is always available immediately that we lose the effort to strive for what is hard to reach and not necessarily instantaneous. A lot of what technology does is, is satisfying our desires in an ever-increasingly quick way. Instant gratification, for instance, is, is, is everywhere. Unfortunately, like mindfulness is not a quick switch we can just turn on. And so the question is, with all the possible ways of spending a lot of time today, are we willing to dedicate a certain portion of it to, to reflection? And I'm very interested in a very particular type of, of time, which, which is the anti-time, a time in, in which you don't try to fit an activity which removes you from contemplation. We have become in, increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of just sitting there and thinking about the nature of stuff without having anything um, specific to, to accomplish in a way. Um, I'm fascinated by the concept of empty time and how we have evolved our relationship uh, to it over the centuries. Uh, a few centuries ago, the fact of having a lot of time for yourself was considered in society as a symbol of power, like kings and other figures of might had as many people as they wanted to perform all the tasks they needed to accomplish. And on the, on the other hand, the poor and the people on the lower scale of society had no time for themselves at all as they were working to survive. And so the more empty time you had, the more powerful you were. Uh, today, I almost feel like we have entered an era where the opposite is going on. Um, when you ask someone to go out for, for coffee, for instance, and, and you get the answer, I'm sorry, I'm super busy right now, I have tons of stuff to do. You basically assume that that person is important and that he or she has very little time for you and for himself. And in fact, the status of being busy today is naturally associated with the idea of, of power and, and success. And on the other hand, someone who will have tons of empty time will be almost considered as, as lazy in, in comparison. And so technology today is building on this approach of time efficiency and optimization. And as time has become money, no one wants to spend it doing nothing. Like the fact that even having the appearance of doing nothing has become an issue for, for itself. Like through the mediums we have nowadays, we're constantly avoiding empty time through entertainment or interaction. We, we all do that. When we're waiting for a bus, for instance, we, and we, just, like, we just sit there looking at this. Nobody sits there just looking at the sky or the trees. We almost feel like we're, we're looking weird if we do that. Like now smartphones give us the, the impression that we, are all given, that we are always doing something important. And so maybe one of the Buddhist approach which really inspired this project is, is to not be afraid of letting yourself go uh, into your own mind again. Because at the end, that, that's where the most beautiful things happen. The most amazing moves and games happen in our own minds. And of course, only if, if we want to let them happen. Not being afraid anymore with, with being alone with yourself rather than being connected all the time. If you've received value from the Buddhist Geeks podcast, and if you'd like to support us in expanding what we can offer in the future, please consider becoming a micro-patron of Buddhist Geeks by going to BuddhistGeeks.com donate. By contributing as little as $5 each month, you can help us continue to make Buddhist Geeks the best possible free resource of 21st century digital dharma that it can be. You can learn more about the Buddhist Geeks micro-patronage drive and see how we're doing by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com donate. 
Thank you so much for your continued support. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.